Hello, it's Thursday, November the 18th. This is the Andrew Pearce Show, coming as ever from the Daily Mail newsroom. Coming up... I'm talking to the writer who went without sex for a year. She really rather liked it. Also, booming jobs. We've got one a record 1.3 million job vacancies. And we thought unemployment was going to be soaring as we emerged from the pandemic. Melanie Sykes, a television presenter, diagnosed with autism at 51. I'll be telling you why she's not alone. Many, many other women get diagnosed with the condition when they're middle-aged. Also, inflation. It soared to its highest level in more than 10 years. But first, at last, I for one am delighted. Nine Insulate Britain protesters have been banged up in jail. Good. Insulate Britain protesters have finally been sentenced to prison for blocking roads around Britain in that campaign that's infuriated many people this autumn. They've been sentenced to between three and six months for breaking an injunction. Emma Smart, one of the protesters who was sentenced on Wednesdays, announced her immediate intention to go on hunger strike. I'm joined now by Sir Peter Fahey, who's former Chief Constable of the Greater Manchester Police Force. Sir Peter, um, I think a lot of people will be thrilled that they've been jailed because... um, what was happening before, They were. it was a highway offence, so they were being fined or uh, and set free to, get to, to immediately start re-offending. Do you think it's an appropriate use of the criminal law to put protesters in jail, though? Um, well, it's actually really the civil law, isn't it? Um, yeah. I mean, I think if there's no other option, um, clearly, you know, that has to happen. It's gone in front of, uh, you know, a, a proper constituted court. Yeah. Uh, the court has made its decision after considering all the evidence, um, and these people have decided to defy the court, and I think that's very important in a democracy. You sort of operationally, day-to-day, it doesn't really help the police, you know, in some ways. They've got still the challenge of how to deal with these people and how to react when they can turn up anywhere on the on the motorway network. Uh, and I think the other problem always is, isn't it, is it makes these people look like martyrs. Yeah, But in any course. protest, that you know, there's always a level of, of disruption. Um, and inconvenience. But, you know, what I would argue is that the inconvenience that was, you know, caused by these people um, and the amount of traffic disrupted and people delayed, you know, was far out of, of kilter with their particular yes. protests. And, 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 you know, and in a democracy, that's something which has got to be balanced against the right to protest. The other point as well, Sir Peter, I think is quite significant. Look, they every time they ran into a, onto a motorway in front of moving traffic, they were potentially risking injury or their own lives. Well, that's their lookout, isn't it? But also they were potentially endangering drivers, motorists, whether it be in a car or a lorry. And we also know there's plenty of anecdotal evidence now that a number of people were prevented getting to hospital appointments. And there's even the heartbreaking case of the grandmother, who uh, I think the son was in fact driving her on the M25 and they were disrupted for six hours. And by the time she got to hospital, she'd had a major stroke. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think this was the problem with these protests. It was causing, you know, potential serious danger. And, and motorways with the speed of traffic are not something to really to, you know, to take lightly. Um, you know, so that was a, a real concern. But I think the other one, Andrew, was mm. that this was becoming, you know, a, a risk of disorder. Uh, some drivers at the later protests were becoming seriously angry. Some yes. were trying to drive at the protesters. Yes. So I think, you know, what the court also had to take into account and the police, that there was a serious risk of somebody being seriously injured at one of these protests um, because of the anger that was being created. 
Yeah, and they were also unrepentant, weren't they, Sir Peter? They didn't care about the uh, injunction. They don't. And one of them actually said in court, if you set me free, I'm going to immediately reoffend. Um, I wonder if prison, you know, prison, it can be a tough place if prison may uh, dampen their ardour. I don't know. Um, you know, I, I think in some ways it's a shame that they have had to go to prison and you do wonder, was there not some some huge financial penalty which could have been imposed on them because they largely seem to be people that you know were of means and had yes. property i think yeah. we all feel very passionately um, about climate change but it comes back to um it is the level of disruption that was being caused um, and it is the fact that you know the case went in the front of the court every side has got this chance to be represented and, and to put its case uh, the court has made an order and that order is defied and i think in any democracy that has to be treated seriously and really the court was left with no other option just finally for police officers incredibly difficult sir peter you're a former chief constable incredibly difficult they were damned if they did they were damned if they didn't they got there too late they didn't move them quickly enough it's very difficult if people super glue themselves to a road or a pavement um uh, how difficult is it for the police to get involved in uh, a protest when the country when they know that there is a right to protest in it, it, uh, unspoken in british law no, it's very complex and, you know, and it's quite clear that there's a right to protest. Um, but, you know, we have a particular style of policing in our country. In other countries like France, this would have been met by tear gas and probably water cannon from the police. That's not the style of British policing and the British people would not find that acceptable. But it does mean the police are in a very difficult balance, difficult you know, position to get it right. Some people strongly feel the police did not move in quickly enough and should have been more robust at the, at the start. You know, but they had to to judge, you know, what was and generally in in policing protest, you escalate, you know, you start from one level. But if people keep on, you know, disrupting uh, and ignoring the police, then you move to a higher you know, level of of tactics. But it's really difficult when people glue themselves to the 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 street as well. And even then, you know, even when the police were arresting people, um, the trouble was it wasn't enough for them then to be kept in custody and they could turn up the next day. Yeah. And the trouble with this, Andrew, and I think you probably saw, is it did mean a huge number of officers were deployed every morning around the M25, trying to wait for these people to turn yeah. up and then move in very quickly. And those are officers that, are quite seriously, are not in the neighbourhoods. They're not investing other types of crime. They're not inv- in, 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 you know, investigating serious assaults. And this has to be taken into account and balanced against the right to protest. Absolutely right. That's Sir Peter Fahey, the former Chief Constable of the Greater Manchester Police Force. Thanks for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free, in full, along with our other podcasts and video series. Remember to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. Now, because it's all happening in the Square Mile, we're coming a little sooner to Ruth Sunderland, who is, of course, the business editor at The Daily Mail. Ruth, those inflation figures... I'm older than most, so I remember when inflation was in not just double digits, it was above 20%, but 4.2% is the highest for, what, more than a decade? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it, it's at a very, very high level at the moment. It's a long time, really, since we've had to worry about inflation. Um, we, we've really gone through... So since 1992, really, when the Bank of England and other central banks around the world started inflation targeting, um, they've largely been successful and it hasn't been a huge worry. So as you point out, you know, you, 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 you don't look old at all, but you drew, you drew attention to 
to your age. And <laughs> I, there are really a lot of people, yeah. you know, in their 40s, you've got no adult memory no. at all of high inflation and very little idea what it's what it's like. So, you know, you've got price inflation now 4.2%. That's more than double the Bank of England's official target. And this, of course, is adding pressure on the bank um, to do something about it, because once you let that genie out of the bottle, it can very rapidly run under control, run out of control and cause all kinds of appalling damage to household budgets and of course, political damage and damage to the public finances. Yeah, I mean, but I can remember Black Wednesday when we tumbled out of the exchange rate mechanism in 1992 oh. and interest rates briefly t- soared to 15%, at which point I thought, right, I'm going to give the keys back to the building society because <laughs> I cannot keep my house on those rates, even if I have 10 lodges. But Ruth, what, what are the solutions? What are the levers that the Chancellor can press or pull to get this fixed? Interest rates presumably are one option. That, that, that's right. So interest rates are the main option. Um, the Governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, and his Monetary Policy Committee so far have not pulled that lever. Interest rates are very low at the moment at 0.1%. People are talking about um, an increase perhaps to 0.25. So by historic standards, by the standards you were just talking about, still extremely low. Um, but that would send out a big signal. People a lot of people were expecting that to have already happened. Uh, Governor Bailey did raise expectations that interest rates might be hiked at the most recent meeting, and then they weren't. So um, we are looking very much at the possibility. It's a bit of a balancing act. The reluctance to increase um, rates has, has largely been around um, whether or not the inflation we've seen is, is a sort of transient um, phenomenon whereby um, whereby um, the, that um, you know you, you, it was a reaction to COVID and um, would just wash out of the system of its own accord. Now, it's that's looking less and less credible. You know the, the strategy of ignoring it and hoping it'll go away. That's not really working. We've seen that from these figures. So, you know, this is what the bank is looking at. It's very important. You know, there are going to be big political implications to this. About a quarter of our two trillion debt is index linked, which means that if inflation goes up, the interest bill automatically goes up. So every 1% on inflation and on interest rates costs the Treasury 23 billion. And that in effect, is costs us. You know, it's all it's all out of our pocket. Of course, and it's also cost us in the sense too that the markets reacted, um, Ruth, to Andrew Bailey's hints that interest rates were going up. So the building societies, the banks withdrew some favourable mortgage schemes, and yet the rates didn't go up, and they've not brought those favourable rates back. Those favourable rates back. I know. So this is this is the appalling thing about it, really. Um, And this is the kind of thing that really gets people's goat is that the mortgage rates have gone up. Savings rates have not gone up, um, you know, which savers have had a really raw deal for years uh, in the face of low interest rates and QE. So the behavior of the banks has been you know, pretty, pretty poor around all of this, you would, you would hope that, um, you know, they would respond as and when they need to rather than preempt it and, and bring it all on borrowers sooner than, than necessary. I think we are looking at a rise in interest rates. Um, my own feeling is that it, I would rather see a, a judicious rate rise 
soon rather than risk having to do a sort of big jolting handbrake turn a bit down the line because that really would be um be quite you know well very very disruptive really and and it could provoke quite a sharp fall in the housing market if you if you had to have a big increase if inflation were allowed to go out of control so i think it's very difficult for the bank um they're aware that putting interest rates up at this point the economy is still quite fragile coming out of covid but jobs numbers have been good um so that will have given the bank a, a bit of boldness. They might also not really want to be the first international central bank to yeah. move. Yeah. You know, they might prefer to hide behind the skirts of the Fed um, in the US and, and the ECB rather than be the first mover. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, it's a tricky one. Who would, who would want to be in Governor Bailey's shoes right now? Not me. Absolutely right. Ruth Sandlin always tells it as it is. She is, of course, the business editor of the Daily Mail. Thanks for joining us. The television presenter Melanie Sykes has revealed life-changing or even life-affirming news that she's been diagnosed with autism at the age of 51. Now, experts believe that there's many more middle-aged women, potentially thousands, who could be battling through life with undiagnosed autism, with their problems wrongly being blamed on other things. I'm joined now by good health writer Pat Hagen. Pat, um, very brave of Melanie Sykes to speak out in this way. How did it take so long to, for it to be diagnosed? Because autism, I would have thought there would be telltale signs. And that's the key question, Andrew, really. But it seems like um, autism manifests itself in a completely different way in, in, in women and in young girls than it does with boys. Um, so the experts I've spoken to said that many women are slipping under the radar as children. And the reason is that in a boy, the classic signs of autistic behavior might be you know, disruptive behavior, aggression, speech problems, behavioral issues. They're all, you know, they're all red lights for something. In girls, it, it's very different. So they might, um, autism, autism might manifest itself as shyness, with being withdrawn, being quiet, being uh, essentially what society would traditionally class as a good girl, sitting quietly, listening, not disrupting. So it gets passed off, ironically, as good behavior. And in fact, what it is, is that they, they, they're struggling so much to cope with their surroundings and their social interactions that they effectively shut down. Um, and over the years, this often then gets mistakenly diagnosed as anxiety and depression. And later on, a really interesting thing I thought was that later on in life, there's a high chance of these women developing things like anorexia and eating disorders. That's how the autism uh, shows itself in, in adulthood. And is it partly too for women in particular, the women with autism, that, particularly where it's not been diagnosed, they struggle perhaps in relationships, they struggle in friendships, they struggle to make an emotional connection to people, but um, put that down to perhaps depression or, or all sorts of other factors. That's exactly, that's exactly it. So they have all those social interaction issues, which of course we, we normally, you know, uh, it's a huge generalisation, but... We, we take it for granted that women are generally better at that sort of thing than men, the social interaction, the, the, the chit-chat, and making social connections. <clears throat> it sounds like for these women, it's an absolute nightmare. I mean, they do it, um, but they, um, they struggle with it all the time, and it, 
and it does lead to depression and it leads to anxiety about social situations. Uh, one of the experts I spoke to with this piece uh, gave a good, um, a good example of it. He said, if you think of autistic boys at school, you can pick them out quite easily because of all the things we mentioned, the disruptive behavior and the inability to connect. But girls are much better at something called camouflaging it. They hide it. And then, but if they said, if you speak to the parents of these girls, they have something they call 4 p.m. crash. They get home from school. They're so mentally and emotionally exhausted from keeping the lid on their autism throughout the day that they literally collapse in a, in a heap. Mentally and physically, they break down. And that's a regular occurrence for young autistic girls who, who haven't been diagnosed and aren't getting the help they need. Fascinating. Do you think people now, we know about Melanie Sykes and others, that this will enable more, uh, particularly if uh, there is an emotional problem or a communication problem, a girl may perhaps present herself to a doctor. A doctor may now be more likely to think, hey, potentially it's autism. And if they do think that, do they, is there a test they then do for to diagnose it, Pat? It, it, or or, or is, it, is it a diagnosis that experts make? It's, it's, an, it's something, so there are numerous ways of diagnosing it, and it's all, it's kind of a, a checklist, essentially. Obviously, there's no blood test or saliva test or anything like that, and more to the point, there isn't an easy treatment for it. But um, you can diagnose it, and the, the lady I interviewed for the, for the article, she went through a formal diagnosis in her 40s, and, um, um, and they cut, I think they more or less cut it short because they said it's so obvious that you have it. Um, so it is easy. To, and then for youngsters with autism, there are uh, sort of coping mechanisms. There are, there are therapy sessions they can have for speech and language or whatever their particular uh, symptom of autism is. So there are things you can do to identify it. Um, and for a lot of these women, I think it's just uh, the one described it very well. She said it's like getting a not, not guilty verdict. I'm not guilty of being, you know, um, uh, socially awkward, you know, just an odd person. None of this is actually my fault. It's all down to decades of undiagnosed autism. And it sounds like there may be many more adult women, middle-aged women in the same position. Uh, And on that, just finally, Pat, if someone listening to this thinking, you know what, that could possibly be me. What should they do? Is there a National Autism Society website or something they should look at which can perhaps point them in the right direction? Yes, there is. There, there's, I think it's a National Autistic Society. There's, there's lots of good research and literature right. out there. I would suggest just having taking your time and having a look at what's been written about um, about autism in women, in adult women. Um, and um, I know there is research going on in this field at the moment. So hopefully you know in the years to come it will be detected at an earlier age and therefore you know as young young girls will then be will learn to sort of cope with it and maybe they won't end up on antidepressants or in eating disorder clinics in, in years later because of their hidden autism absolutely fascinating pat as ever that's uh, pat hagen who's a good health writer talking about autism especially in middle-aged women thanks for joining us Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to our podcast, videos, opinion pieces and much more. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet us at mailplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. So good news on the economic front, despite the bleak 
figures on inflation because job vacancies are a record high. The unemployment rate is down uh, to just 0.3% higher than it was before the pandemic. That's according to the Office for National Statistics. So what skills are employers looking for? What's the best way to find a good job and attract and attract employers. Uh, I'm joined now by James Reid, who's founder of Britain's largest employment agency, Reid. James, if I can call you by your first name, the number of temporary employees in the UK increased by 13.5% on a seasonally adjusted basis to nearly 1.7 million up to September 2021, compared to a year ago. Why would they be temporary, James, and not permanent jobs? That's a very good question. And, um, a lot of temporary jobs are, are, are seasonal or, or where employers require sort of flexibility, I suppose. So they might, be, um, they might be jobs related to summer work or now in particular coming up to Christmas. There's a lot of um, temporary or short-term contract jobs related to transport, delivery, retailing, etc. But the other thing is in the past, you typically saw temporary jobs grow um, quickly out of a recession. What's interesting this time is there are a lot more permanent jobs. <clears throat> so, so I think it's this time it's quite apparent that there's a jobs boom underway and there are more permanent jobs than you would have expected um, coming out of a recession. So it's a mix. The picture is a mix. Um, and lots of people actually who are entering their career or starting out in their career do start with temporary jobs. And, yeah. and some of those jobs convert to permanent jobs. And it's a really good way into the workplace. So we've got record number of vacancies, about 1.2 million, which is an increase of nearly 400,000 pre-COVID. We thought unemployment was going to go rattling into the 10 or 11% level of the working population. That didn't happen. Um, Is the dark storm clouds caused by inflation, uh, James, is that a worry for uh, employment agencies? Is it a worry for people looking for jobs? Well, inflation's a worry, particularly um, if, if wages aren't going up, um, as because our real wages will subsequently fall and, and it becomes harder to meet the cost of living. So depending on your situation, if you're not working, inflation's particularly bad. And if you are working and you're in a job and you haven't had a pay rise for a while, it's bad too. So some of the inflation, I think, has been stoked by wage increases. Um, we've seen that particularly in sectors like... Um, hospitality and leisure you know lots of restaurants are now paying more for staff than they did in the past Um, and you can see that that's a sector that's been particularly affected in the inflation numbers but most of this inflation seems to be coming through in terms of global fuel prices yes and and that's a big problem i think now what about you there's many jobs in the market what sort of jobs are if if you can divided up into groups i mean what have you got a shortage of and what have you got plenty of jobs on your books on in what areas well, well we're experiencing a jobs boom really and, it, and it's a jobs boom that began way back in the spring in april and may and we've got over three hundred thousand jobs now on our website and it's been consistently above three hundred thousand for all of the month of november and i've never seen anything like that before so we've got more jobs than ever and it's across all sectors so um, there are lots of jobs um, in, in seasonal work, whether you want to work in retailing or in, 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 in hospitality. Um, but there are lots of jobs in all sectors. It seems like uh, everyone's recruiting at the moment. I mean, everyone's coming out of these lockdowns and looking for staff. So it's a really good time to look for a job. And, and pay is rising, too. 
Good, good. And the number of vacancies, just finally, James, is it could there be potentially a crisis? We know there's been supply side issues already. I mean, that's happening around the world. But we know that there have not been enough HGV drivers for partly because of the pandemic, partly because some of them went back after Brexit. Uh, we know there's been problems with seasonal pick, uh, fruit pickers, vegetable pickers. Uh, will, can all these vacancies be filled, do you think? Well, the statistics, the government's own statistics, show that the number of people unemployed is, is pretty much on par with the number of vacancies. So, um, And that means probably they won't all be filled because those people won't necessarily be in the right places or be able to or willing to do the work. So I think uh, employers are going to find it harder to recruit going into the new year. And, and because of that, they really need to look at what they're offering people, both in terms of pay and conditions and opportunities to learn and grow because they'll have to compete for people more and more in the year ahead, I think. And if people want to find jobs on your website, where do they look? Um, Reed.co.uk is the address of the website. And when you go there, you'll be able to search um, for something specific or you'll see areas if you want to look for a part-time job or work-from-home job. Just click on that button. Sounds great. That's James Reed, who is the founder of Britain's largest employment agency, Reed. And if you're looking for a job, they've got 300,000 vacancies. So get onto the website. So the journalist Katie Glass broke up with her boyfriend in the first lockdown and she went without sex for 12 months, the longest time in her adult life. She says it was completely liberating and that when she did finally have sex again, it was like losing her virginity all over again. And she now feels in much less of a hurry to get into a relationship. She joins me now. Katie, why did lockdowns put you off sex? (laughs) I don't know if lockdown put me off sex i mean some of it was practical right so because you couldn't you see couldn't him. meet yeah. no you couldn't see them you had to do sort of skype dates zoom yeah. dates yeah not um, very romantic are also, they <laughs> well no definitely no touching and then there was a sort of unromantic you know you'd go on a walk in the park maybe and be at arm's length from someone mm. um so i wasn't it wasn't like i thought right that's it i hate sex i never want to have sex again it was sort of i was forced into a situation of having come out of this big relationship, not being able to sort of meet someone in person. Mm. And so I would say more found myself going without sex for a year and then was surprised actually to be quite into it. <laughs> yeah. How long were you in the relationship for that broke up? Uh, we'd been together for six years. That's quite a long time. And so you went out without sex for 12 months, the longest time in your adult life. Why was it liberating? Well, I sort of wrote about, you know, how I think maybe as women in particular, but like I think everyone, you get quite consumed with sort of sex nowadays, right? So right, yeah. yeah, you're a teenager and everyone's like, are you doing it? Are you not doing it? And then in my 20s, I was probably like very worried about all the men I fancied. Did they fancy me? Was I good looking enough? Um, you know, who am I getting enough? Because, you know, you feel like everyone's having sex in their 20s. Then in my 30s, I was engaged and I sort of was trying to have a baby. So yeah. I guess sex became about getting pregnant. So then I this coincided with me turning 40 right. and um, I guess it was like a, it was the first time I didn't really have to think about someone else. I, I really stopped thinking about, you know, worrying, I suppose, about am I attractive enough? Am I sexy enough? Mm. You know, there was no one around to worry if they would fancy me. I didn't have to worry about things like shaving my legs and, um, you know, just, I think you can get very consumed with that as a woman. It's yes. not just about am I good looking enough? It's like, it is a lot of it about am I attractive enough? Am I sexually attractive enough? So I just sort of um, yeah. stopped worrying about it. And I compared you, it to that scene in Gone Girl, you know, where she drives off and she's scoffing candy and, like, it's quite yeah. liberating. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think, um, I mean, obviously you, 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 you've you got male friends too. 
is there more pressure on the woman? Because, for instance, I've never shaved my legs. Uh, I've never <laughs> shaved under my arms. Now, uh, I have to shave my, my, my face every day. But these are issues that perhaps blokes don't think about. Oh, but it's 100%, I think, even, I mean, I like to think of myself as a feminist. I'm not, like, yeah. particularly obsessed with, like, wearing makeup all the time or anything. Yeah. But definitely, you know, in Fleabag, I think there's scenes where she, she, she jokes about someone comes over to your house and you have to quickly pull yourself together and make yourself look amazing and pretend that's how you were sitting around, dressed as, uh, just looking hot anyway. I mean, yeah. as a, I don't know, um, but if you got a cool thing, you know, come over, maybe you could just rock over, whereas a woman would think... Oh God! I've got to shave my legs. Maybe put yeah. my dress on. What's what the underwear a, like? Yeah, skirt. Yeah, all that. Yeah, no, it's, it's never, never been a factor. Now, as there's also <laughs> your life has also changed in another way, Katie, because I read a fascinating piece you wrote in the Evening Standard the other day about the fact you've moved into a small, well, bijou is a one way of putting it, or tiny. You couldn't even swing a cat in it. Caravan. Now that <laughs> won't be great for your sex life either. I wouldn't have thought. Well, I don't know. So I, was, I don't know if the caravan and, and not sleeping with anyone are connected. To be honest, um, I would say that I had quite a lot of men saying, oh, they think it's quite cool. Maybe oh. I'm a bit mad and brave yeah, yeah. running off to live in a van. But practically, certainly, um, yeah. it's not the best, <laughs> best yeah. place to but, get any action but, in. <laughs> but why did you run off to move in a van? Because it's just too expensive to buy a property? No, it's, well, the property market has gone so wild with so yeah. many people moving out of yeah, London yeah. and other cities in lockdown um, that to buy something, even to rent something, you turn up and they, these properties go overnight. And Airbnb, you know, I was paying sort of for Airbnbs for, I think I've been looking for something for like a year now, trying to buy something. Mm. And in the end, I thought I'll cut my losses and buy this silly little van. Um, but I guess it hasn't been great for my sex life, no. No. You know, practically, there's not a lot of room. But you do, <laughs> but you are really enjoying that as well, aren't you? Living in the caravan. Oh, yeah. So the, the caravan's been an epiphany. I mean, it, it seemed like a desperate measure when I bought it. Like, you know, God, it's reached the end of the road. I'm going to go and live in this van. And it's like a silly, mini, little happy paradise that I filled with oh. very light bunting. And I'm by a field of sheep. And, How nice. and I'm wondering why I'm going to go and spend all my money on a house. Really yeah, why, why, why bother? <laughs> yeah, you don't have to pay. You probably don't have to pay council tax and all that old stuff. Where, which part of the world are you in? Are you in um, which part of the countryside are you in? The caravan and me are in Somerset. Lovely part um, of the world. Lovely part of the world. So, Katie, yeah. uh, now you now you got back into sex because after twelve months, was it great? Oh, uh, was it great? Um, I suppose it was really. I sort of wrote about the fact that yeah, I reclaimed my body, stopped yes. caring, stopped not going to shave my legs, and then yeah. went through a whole thing where I for myself started getting very fit, um, going to the gym, and I think probably the sort of endorphins and adrenaline of yeah. that you start to think oh actually it'd be quite nice to meet someone again so yeah, nice. i think when i you know maybe maybe it gave me a long time to think about the reasons i'd been having sex before yes. you know the, the sort of desperation things i was talking about in my 20s and teens and um 30s and maybe now i was like actually i'm going to do this because i want to and i think i came with a really different attitude so that definitely made it better good and is he a regular is he a, is he a serious boyfriend? Is he a regular? <laughs> serious boyfriend? Like, um, we saw each other for a while and it didn't work out. But, oh, you know, well. It was fun. It was, it was, nice fun. For a few it was fun while it lasted, Katie. Katie, it you've was. been a joy to talk to. Good luck with um, your sex life and good luck with the caravan in glorious Somerset. Thank you so much. It's so lovely to speak to you again. And to you. That's Katie Glass, the writer, journalist. Thanks for joining us.
That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, you should download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'm going to be back with you tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Good night.